Well, this has been a fruitless conversation, <laughs> which derives from the Latin fruit, which means fruit. <laughs> oh, God. Hello and welcome to Book Retorts. I'm Sam. I'm Danielle. And this is the podcast about sharing your weird media with your friends who probably don't know what you're talking about. That's me. Yes, that is you, Danielle. <laughs> Very good. And our lovely listeners. Uh, I would hope they mm, understand me a little better than you usually do. Otherwise, <laughs> it's going to be a fruitless exercise. <laughs> what are we doing today? Today, we're going to be discussing the classic seminal work of science fiction Ringworld by Larry Niven. Ooh. So Ringworld came out in 1970. I'm pretty sure it won Hugo and Nebula Awards, of course, because it seems like you couldn't be a white science fiction author and a male back then without stumbling into them. So <laughs> That's all you needed. You just like fell into them face first. Kinda. Anytime you had like a name, like, oh, that guy, sure, here's a Nebula Award. Here's a Hugo Award. Whatever. Right. And we discussed that about Asimov and his The Gods Themselves. Yeah. Again, not going to say this is a bad book. I think it's a very interesting book, but it is also extremely weird. So that's why we're here. I'm looking forward to it. Let's do this. I'm going to send you the description for this book, at least a description. I went through a few different ones because they were all either extremely verbose or extremely lacking. And it was very hard to find one that had enough information to be comprehensible, but not just like, oh, here's the plot. Because again, it's convoluted. So okay. here you go. That's long. Let's see. Lewis Wu, accompanied by a young woman with jeans for luck and a captured zin? Kazin? 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 Yeah, yeah. It's going to be that kind of book. <laughs> oh, man. A warlike species resembling eight-foot tail cats. Tall. Oh, <laughs> what's an eight-foot tail cat? <laughs> this is already a disaster are taken on a spaceship run by a brilliant two-headed alien called Nessus. Their destination is the Ring World, an artificially constructed ring with high walls that hold three million times the area of Earth. Its origins are shrouded in mystery. The adventures of Lewis and his companions on the Ring World are unforgettable. Dot, dot, dot. I read this book before and definitely forgot a lot about it. So... <laughs> That last part, at least, is questionable. My eyes got watery because I laughed and then I could barely read it. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, was that the excuse you're going to give for Miss yeah. Tail? <laughs> it really did look like Tail. Maybe I need new glasses. <laughs> eight foot tail cats would be cool, though. What does that even mean? I don't know, but tails? I bet they're awesome. But I'm still there for the eight foot tall cats. What is that? I'll get to it, I promise. But just to preempt it, it's like a cross between a Wookiee and a Klingon. But they look like cats. Yeah, that's the Wookiee part. Like the giant furry thing, but with the temperament of a Klingon. A Katuki? <laughs> a Kazin, please. Good Tucky. So this book <laughs> that is... That was funnier than you gave it credit for. It, mm, mm, <laughs> uh, mm, mm, not, not sure about that. Okay, continue. I'm I sorry. I gave it appropriate funny credit. <laughs> I got really stuck on the eight-foot tall cats. I know, the word and the concept. <laughs> All right, so this book is just jam-packed 
with technobabble, long descriptions of how the universe works. It's more like a vehicle for sci-fi ideas the author found interesting and cool than it is a story, I mm-hmm. think. Was this ever adapted into any kind of like TV or movie or I don't know series? about that. I know the concept of the Niven Ring, as it's called, the, the ring around a star, has been used in video games and science fiction. I don't know if it was ever made into a TV show or or film. Mm-hmm. If it was, I'd be very curious to see that. But I, I have a sense that it wasn't for whatever reason. Okay. But anyway, so I'm going to try my best to convey this book without just turning this into a lecture about sci-fi universe mechanics. <laughs> Good so luck. We're going to see how this goes. This is definitely going to be a part one because this book is dense and long. Hopefully, it won't be too many parts. But if this is not your cup of tea, come back in October for our Halloween episodes or in a couple of weeks for whatever Danielle has after this. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks for plugging me. I appreciate that. Yes. You should definitely check out my co-host Danielle on the podcast <laughs> we're both on. Every Wednesday, bookretorts.com. Check it out. I hear it's pretty good. I hear it's great. I'm yeah, going well, to look know, into it. Better things. <laughs> the Danielle character, I hear she's amazing. Oh, yeah. She's the reason to listen, apparently. <laughs> and she should be listening while I go launch into this description. All right. I'm, I'm all ears. I'm here. I'm here for you, Sam. <laughs> oh, boy. How do we even begin? So, Once the upon book a time. opens by following Louis Wu, who is a human being, so far so good, on his 200th birthday. He has left his 200th birthday party, which was a 24-hour affair, and he's been traveling just ahead of the date line, like the midnight line, to try to keep his birthday going a few extra hours. So he's running like ahead of midnight. I thought you meant date line. I was like, the news show? <laughs> yes, Danielle. Date I was like, line, that can't the news be right. show that came out. Probably after 1970 when this book was published. It it took me a minute. I forgot we were in sci-fi. Give me a break. Okay. (laughs) So there are these teleportation booths and there's some time spent about like, oh, the booths teleport him around to different cities and he's running ahead of the international date line or 12-hour line, midnight line, whatever it's called. I don't know if there's a specific name for it. Why is he running ahead of it? To keep his birthday going a bit longer. Oh, that sounds like something I would do. Yeah, so it's 200, but he left the party, so it's kind of like this restlessness. Apparently, he is a kind of a weird human. He's been around for 30 years, and he gets restless and likes to go off on sabbaticals, where he just takes a spaceship and leaves throughout known space, which is the name we give to the area of space that humans are occupying is known space. Mm -hmm. And everything outside that is unknown space, even though it's still known to other things that humans know It's like other alien cultures exist outside of known space, but it's very human-centric. As all things are. (laughs) Do people usually live 200 years in this sci-fi reality? They have, like, drug that extends your lifespan, apparently, so it's not, like, remarkable. And he still is as fit as he was when he was 20 and things like that. So, yes, humans have developed a kind of cure to aging. Okay. They also spent some time talking about how sidewalks are basically like moving sidewalks. Like every sidewalk in the city is a moving sidewalk that goes like 10 miles an hour. And how do they stay on them? I don't, they get off and on. I don't know, Danielle. Again, it's- Do they have like the guardrails like they do at the airport where you're on the the people movers? It doesn't mention that. Because that's really fast. Yeah, it seems pretty fast. (laughs) 
<laughs> to like just stand there and keep your balance on 10 mile per hour moving object. I guess so. <laughs> you brought it up. Know, I was just again, curious. This book is a kitchen sink book in a way where they <laughs> throw everything into it and some of it is explained in great detail and some of it just sort of mentioned in passing and not given a whole lot of detail. Well, then you can't get mad when I ask questions about how people movers work. Sure. And I'll be honest, I may also have read that and it slipped my mind because, again, very dense and some of it is definitely not going to be retained. So I apologize in advance. If our listeners wish to write in and explain any of the things I get wrong in this book, email Danielle, (laughs) please. I'm sure she'd love to hear about it. Yeah, that other co-host he plugged earlier. (laughs) Yeah, Danielle. She's the one who wants to hear all about that. (laughs) All right. So, people movers, datelines, got it. He's running through the city. He's going to different bars. And at one point, he thinks, like, the difference between Moskva and Sydney was a moment of time and a tenth star coin, talking about how easy it was to travel between cities. But Sydney is spelled S-I-D-N-E-Y for some reason. Uh-huh. So, I guess... And the future is, changes. <laughs> yeah, they change the Y to an I for Sydney or it's a different city. I don't know. No, no explanation is given. It's just, isn't the future wacky, folks? <laughs> it's post-Australia. <laughs> We're also introduced to the made-up swear word for this book, which is Tanj. I love made-up swear words. Yeah, yeah. It's T-A-N-J. So it's a made-up swear word in the vein of Goram from Firefly or Frack from Battlestar Galactica. Mm-hmm. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe in Star Trek, they just dropped F-bombs all the time anyway. So that was the most <laughs> realistic one. So we have our made-up swear words. We're hitting all the, the high notes for science fiction universe right now. People movers, teleportation booths, people living in absurd ages, and made-up swear words. I'm, I'm here for this. At one point, he enters a booth, and instead of teleporting to where he wants to go, he teleports to a hotel room where he's confronted by a very weird-looking alien. Mm-hmm. He looks into his memory and remembers that from you know, a long time ago in school, he learned that these are called Pearson's Puppeteers, which is a heck of a name. Does he literally look into his memory? He just recollects that that's he what they're called. He just recollects. Okay. It's not, not like, it. it's not <laughs> like a, a mind palace like- with the... <laughs> Like, is there like a Rolodex in there? No, I I admit this book gets weird, so I should be clear about when I'm being (laughs) metaphorical or not. I appreciate that. So what were they called again? A Pearson's Puppeteer. Pearson's Puppeteer. Okay. The named aliens in this book are remarkable. They're great. (laughs) And he didn't mean to come into this hotel room, right? He just got magically somehow. Well, he was redirected here by the puppeteer. I figured he was redirected somehow. So the puppeteer has three legs, so it sounds like a tripod, (laughs) and it has two long, flat necks and heads, like snaky and flexible, but its brain is like in the middle and the hump between the two heads. So the two heads are just like a mouth, which it also uses for hands. Like its mouth has weird lips that are elongated with like little finger protrusions that it uses to (laughs) manipulate objects Uh like hands. So yeah, it's really weird. (laughs) And he thinks to himself, it's not an animal. It was at least as intelligent as a man. And as we learn, they are way more intelligent than men. So that seems like quite a thought to be having, Mr. Wu. <laughs> so he remembers that, the, what they're called, and does he yes. remember anything else about them besides He remembers that? what they look like, and uh, I don't remember when this comes up. I'm going to just touch on it here, but he remembers that at one point, the Pearson's Puppeteers, they're, they're on a migration. They're leaving our galaxy because the core of our galaxy has gone supernova. Mm-hmm. We now know the core of our galaxy is a supermassive black hole, which is different, so... Things have changed. Isn't there a song about that? Oh, I don't know. Maybe there's a song. We should post it to our Twitter if you can find it. (laughs) Okay. 
I might just be thinking of that one song, The Sun is a Massive Incandescent Gas. Oh, Why Does the Sun Shine? Great yeah. song. Yeah. Anyway, it's not un- entirely related, but... <laughs> no. So there was a supermassive supernova chain reaction in the galaxy's core, and it's, so, and it's moving out at the speed of light through the galaxy, and it's going to destroy the entire galaxy in like 20,000 years. So the Pearson's puppeteers have migrated, are leaving the galaxy to go to the the clouds of Magellan to set up a new life away from the supernova. And the reason they're leaving so early is because they are massive cowards. Uh-huh. They are cowardly creatures. That is their alien trait is that they are cowardly. Everybody gets one alien trait and theirs is cowardice. Yep, that's exactly right. It's Star Trek rules. <laughs> so the Pearson's puppeteers are leaving. They have a giant commercial network. That's how humans and other interact with them. They sell ship holes and other things to the people. They are a massive commercial network and they're leaving the galaxy. So he was very surprised to see that after they had started the migration 200 years ago to find one here in his planet in this hotel room. How does he know he's still on his planet if he just got redirected I don't think there. the teleportation can go that far. Oh, okay. At least it's not clear. Also, quiet. <laughs> <laughs> Like, if he gets hijacked, like, clearly it has capabilities he I think, was I not. I think the network is limited, and they just redirect him within the network. He can't, like, hook up an external thing to the network. As far as he knows. Okay, as far as he knows. <laughs> anyway, the alien speaks to him, and it, quote, has a voice to spark adolescent dreams. Apparently, it's a very <laughs> sexy voiced alien. It's <laughs> a weird phrase. <laughs> yeah, it has its really seductive voice. If it didn't look so weird, he'd be very attracted to it. <laughs> okay. So he tells the alien, like, oh, I know about you. Your whole ethical system is based on cowardice. And the alien's like, well, that's not really accurate. It's based on prudent caution. And so there's like that, like, oh, ha, ha, what we think is cowardice, I think is prudent caution, so on and so forth. The puppeteer says he wants to hire Lewis to go on an expedition to an anomaly they found. And he shows him a hologram of a star that has like a black line sliced across it. Looks like there's something in front of it. What does Lewis usually do in his everyday life? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Does he have any credentials to do this? He's just an adventurer. He goes off on adventures. He like had first contact with some species. He's kind of famous. And so they He's just like want, a famous adventurer. They just want somebody who's going to like go explore. They want to explore. They want an adventurer, uh, okay. a seasoned adventurer for this. <laughs> Seasonadventures.com. That's where you find those. <laughs> Seasonadventures.com. Mm, probably best not to, to go to that <laughs> website, I would say. Wow. Uh, we got to hurry. <laughs> this is chapter one. <laughs> not my fault. So- he wants to hire him to go on his expedition, and for payment, he's going to give him a brand new type of starship that has a super fast hyperdrive. It can cover a light year in five-fourths of a minute, which apparently is very fast. That's so, good to know. That would be a massive boon to the human race to get this special kind of spaceship that is super, super, duper fast. And that is, unfortunately, the, the downside is it's massive. It requires a giant, like, mile-wide starship to hold the engine. You get, like, a few square feet of space for the crew to live in that entire thing. Uh-huh. And they're like, well, we can't figure out how to use it, so maybe you can. So they don't know how to use it? Well, they mean that, like, they're not interested in faster-than-light travel that much because they're so cautious it scares them. Uh-huh. And so they're not interested in refining the technology to the point where it'd be more useful than having to pack it into a giant mile across starship. That's nice of them, I guess. Well, it's the fee for the expedition. Right. And it is worth worth not worthless. It is uh what's the opposite of worthless? Has <laughs> it has worth. no worth. <laughs> it has yeah. Worth. But it has like no defined <laughs> worth. It is incalculably worthful. <laughs> worthful. 
What's the word? I don't know. We should have our own dictionary of words, though. <laughs> well, there's a definitely a word for something that is something you can't put priceless. There it is. <laughs> you got there. Good job. Wow. Priceless and worthless seem like they'd be the same word. <laughs> I know. It's kind of a weird... Uh, what, I don't know what words I'm looking for now. See? <laughs> <laughs> Let's just move on. We'll be here all day. <laughs> okay. So, Lewis is like, all right, this sounds interesting. And he goes, okay, we got to find the rest of our crew. There are going to be four of us, me, you, and two others. And so, the alien, the, the Pearson's puppeteer, takes him to a cafe where there are four of the Kizens sitting next to them on a table. The cat and people! Kizens are giant, like, cat-like creatures, but their ears look like, as he describes, like those Japanese folding fans. Like, they fold out and they fold back in. <gasps> cool. And they have rat tails. I'm so, so excited about the katukis. Rat tails. And they're all, like, honor and warriors, and they're, they're big fighters. They had a bunch of wars with humans, 200 years of, of human Kizen wars, which I'll get into probably at some point, because things come up a lot. This is a lot like Lords of the Sky, where they'll talk about something a little bit, and then they'll talk about it a lot more later, and I get very confused about when they talk about what when. <laughs> it's okay. Just make it coherent, or semi-coherent. Mm, I don't know if I'm succeeding at that already. <laughs> There's kachikis in a bar. I'm here. I'm, I'm totally... Do you say kachikis? <laughs> yeah, they're kachikis. They're right. cats and wookies. <laughs> uh, you're still trying to make that a thing. Stop trying I'm to make that a thing happen, a thing. I'm going to refer to them as kachikis for the rest of this podcast. If you remember that for your summary next week, I'll be impressed. Yeah, that would be pretty amazing, given my history of not remembering things. So, there is one kiss in particular that they're interested in. His name is Speaker to Animals, huh? because he is tasked with being Speaking like to a animals? diplomat. <laughs> Humans. Humans are the animals. Other <laughs> aliens. Like, they have that thing where, oh, your job is to speak to these animals on our behalf. So, they're near the UN, and that's where they run into these set of diplomats. And the Pearson's puppeteer insults them to get their attention, but they back down from an actual challenge because the Kizen have lost the human wars. Like, they got their butts kicked by humanity, and they have learned to be more cautious because they know that humans would wipe them out. Mm -hmm. because they were so, like, ferocious. They didn't have any tactics about restraint or retreat. So they would constantly war themselves to death. Even if they were losing, they would continue to fight until they were completely decimated. Got it. So at this point, we learn the name of the alien, which is Nisus or Nessus. I'm going with Nisus because uh, I can. <laughs> because cause you said so. <laughs> when the Pierce Puppeteer offers a ship to the Kizen as part of the hazard pay, he agrees to come on board since it would earn him a name among his people if he brought such a valuable prize back from an expedition. What's the prize? The ship. The ship? The, the, so the they super share fast it with the Kizen? Right, right. So the they're, they're saying they'll give plans for the ship to anyone who comes on the expedition. They're going to get the technology. Oh, got it. I thought they actually just got a ship, but they get the plans of the ship. Both. They get both, but yes. Yes. Okay. So, chapter two. <laughs> <laughs> All the chapters have titles, which I probably won't go into, but the first two are pretty great. The first chapter is called Louis Wu. Chapter two is And His Motley Crew. And I thought that was fun. <laughs> That's cute. And so they go back to his party. He invites the Kizen and Nisus back to the party on his house, which is still going on apparently. Because <laughs> they have to wait to find the fourth member of the crew who Nisus' agents are looking for. So they return to his apartment and they run into one, Tila Brown. 
who is a 20-year-old girl who has dark blue dyed skin with silver netting sort of etched into it and silver eyes. She is apparently the one Nisa's husband looking for, or one of the ones that Nisa's been looking for. So she like humanoid, but just blue skinned with the, the stars? Yeah, she's a human. She, they have this like skin dye. So I'll wash it off later. So it's kind of irrelevant. Uh-huh. It just adds to the flavor of the universe, I guess. <laughs> yes. If that was a thing, you know people would do it. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I would do it. It's great. So they retire to Lewis's study, and they talk about the expedition, and Nisus is talking about Tila Brown, and why he wants her on the expedition is because, and I don't know why, every book from this era has to talk about things like the procreative rules of humanity have changed. <laughs> there is a fertility board that's been set up that governs how humans can and can't reproduce to control population. Of course. Of course. So it used to be something about like, there was a eugenics play where you got to reproduce based on your gene worthiness. So Gattaca. That didn't go over very well. And eventually they set the fertility board, which everyone gets one for free. You get one freebie. <laughs> that was nice of but them. But then you can earn or buy more reproductive rights through money just by buying it. Uh-huh. By you know, being an accomplished person, you can literally fight to the death for it in gladiatorial arenas where they'll say, oh, I'll bet my <laughs> reproductive right. And if I win, I get your reproductive right and you're dead. So cool. <laughs> And there's also a lottery where they basically do this thing where they total up everyone who's died and everyone who was born and whatever the difference is, they put all that into a lottery and they hand out those as random lottery draws. I like the idea that some government system sat around and was like, what are the three ways in which people can have more children? <laughs> <laughs> I know. It's crazy. And all these like books of this era are obsessed with like human reproduction as some kind of weird system of control. I don't know if like global overpopulation was super popular right then or whatever, but it's always it's just like Asimov <laughs> in the previous book. <laughs> that is so what I just don't understand where those three ideas came from. <laughs> they're like gladiatorial. Oh, among the three ideas among the ideas, those are the three that are highlighted. <laughs> and Nisus reveals that Tila Brown was lucky enough to be a child of a child of a child of like six generations of people who won the lottery. Impressive. And so it'd be more impressive if it was six generations of people who won in the gladiatorial rings. <laughs> <laughs> well, he is saying that humans have been breeding for luck. Like they're breeding luck genes. What? Like they're breeding people Wait, who are inherently what? lucky. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Apparently, he's speculating that humans are breeding luck by using the lottery system. I feel like the first 40 minutes of this podcast, the description of this book, totally buried the lead on <laughs> crazy, like, child-bearing luck genes. <laughs> no, it is, it is, I'm, I'm, oh, so much to get through. It is... <laughs> Yeah, there are some really good, their ideas that are thrown into this are just sort of accepted, like they're breeding life. So she's apparently super lucky. And it's mentioned throughout the book that Lewis is like, oh, she's never seemed to experience hardship. Knows not so much a stub to toe or whatever, because she's so lucky, everything just works out for her. I've gotten shenanigans on that. <laughs> well, they ran into her at this party just by luck, and Nisus was looking for her, and they couldn't find her for weeks, and they just bumped into her at Lewis's party. Well, then it must be luck jeans, of course. <laughs> Uh, I'm not saying it's right or wrong. I'm saying that is the premise of this universe. Okay. I'm, I'm going to go with it, but I uh, I disagree. No, it's, it's crazy. <laughs> Again, I'm not saying you could breed luck. They'd argue about this later about whether or not this is like BS or whether or not it's just coincidence or really like you're breeding for luck. But spoiler alert, from what I remember, the book actually stipulates that they bred for luck. <laughs> of course they did. It's a sci-fi drama. <laughs> 
yeah, it's it's crazy. So it's like we want someone super lucky to go on our expedition with us. So yeah. that's her qualification. I mean, yeah, that's <laughs> don't we all want somebody lucky with us whenever we go someplace? Right. So they have the explorer, they have the warrior, they have the lucky charm, and they have Nisus, the coward financier backer. I'm super into this group of people, just so you know. This is like the best combination, <laughs> the best quartet. Yeah, I, I gotta say, the book does a good job of saying like, oh, yeah, here are your tropes. Let's go in head first. Like, I'm here for Kachikis and Luck Jeans and Adventures.com. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so... We learn a little bit more about the Kizin here. We talked about their mating habits because it all comes up. Oh, do and we ever – sorry. Do we ever get – why are they called that? The puppeteer – the whatever the puppeteers. Pearson's puppeteers? No idea. <laughs> it just never explains it? If that's answered in the book, I don't have the answer yet. Okay. Because <laughs> that seems like a really specific name to give a, yeah, a yeah. character and not – Yeah, yeah. It is the not. weirdest name. Who's Pearson? Why are they his puppeteers? Because it's possessive. <laughs> that's so fascinating. Okay. Sorry. Yeah, continue. I mean, this book does a lot of really interesting things. Like I said, the story feels like a framework on which all these – grand sci-fi ideas are draped. Yes, but so far I'm here for all the grand sci-fi ideas. Yeah, so. no, they're, they're, they're nutso. They're great. They're really weird and interesting. That's why this book is a classic. Okay. So continue on. Got our quartet. So we're learning a little bit more about Nisus. Like, why Nisus? Why are you doing this? And aren't you scared to go on this? She's like, yes, but I'm crazy. <laughs> because apparently everyone in his species who is spacefaring has to be considered crazy because no sane cautious puppeteer would ever leave the safety of the home planet to be in space where a single hole breach would kill them all. Yeah, of course. So he is legit crazy, and he's hoping to win his right to reproduce by doing this. Why is everything contingent on something else for reproduction? Yes, everything <laughs> is sex-based in this book. So we'll learn this later, but I'm going to go about it now because it doesn't matter. We learn that the Pearson's puppeteers, they cannot have a sexual encounter that doesn't result in pregnancy. Ever. So the only way Bummer. to control their population, which is a big deal, which I'll get into a little later, is by maintaining strict abstinence unless you're granted permission to breed. Have they ever tried birth control? <laughs> Out of curiosity. It doesn't work. doesn't work for them. The only other option is surgical, where you basically remove their genitals. That sounds fun. Yeah. So he is desperate to reproduce. Because the only way someone as crazy as him will get the permission to reproduce is by proving his worth through some big dangerous expedition. What happens if he just decides to reproduce? Does he like throw in jail or something? I don't know, Danielle. I, they can't. <laughs> it's it's society won't let he won't find a partner. <laughs> I don't know. Like there's gotta be a partner out there who doesn't care. <laughs> anyway. Anyway. <laughs> we also learn that the kids and females are considered non sentient. Oh, that's an interesting choice. Yeah. It feels icky. <laughs> <laughs> because their females are not sentient, and yet somehow they still re – it just feels like weird, like cattle, like sex cattle, which is so mm, – it's an uncomfortable concept for me. That's odd. Why is this mentioned? Does it ever come up later in the book? Is it ever a plot point? I don't think so. <laughs> it's just just a little note. Notation. Just a little note. Their females are non-sentient, and sometimes the kids will make like comments about Tila Brown about like, oh, our women wouldn't be that strong-headed. Like, well, they, they're not well, sentient. They're, so. like, they're not strong-headed at all because they don't have any heads. <laughs> well, they have heads, I, I think. <laughs> I, I don't brains. know. We never meet one. This is, again, that era of sci-fi that is heavily male-focused. Yeah. So, initially, Tila rejects the proposal to go on the expedition. But she was so lucky as to be chosen. 
But she does stay and shack up with Lewis, who is literally 180 years older than her. Yeah, but Forever 20. Yes, Forever 20. That <laughs> famous store that went through bankruptcy. <laughs> that was a Forever 21, but close. <laughs> What's one year among 200? <laughs> Fair, fair point. And within the standard deviation. Anyway, <laughs> so they stay, he starts sleeping with Lewis, and the Pearson's puppeteer, Nisus, tries to find another such lucky individual to replace her on the crew. Because there's a and lot of puns being luck. bred for he luck. He can't find one. Maybe he should take Tila with him to, to go find one? another Well, <laughs> so here's what happened. He's always like one step behind. They're tracing a guy through the teleportation booth and they're one jump behind them. Or somebody gets injured and takes himself out of the running because he's not lucky enough. So what's probably happening, although it isn't explicitly stated, is that Tila's luck is bending it says she's the only viable option. Yes, I'd assume. <laughs> which is crazy. <laughs> not luck genes. So... Eventually, the Pearson puppeteer comes back, and he's very morose, and apparently he's acting very depressed and scared, and he says, forgive me, Lewis, my manic phase has ended. So, he has bipolar disorder as well. Okay. He has manic phases and depressive phases. Do they all, or just him? I don't know. He does. No idea about the rest of them. <laughs> okay. So, he'll often boomerang quickly between these weird phases, which is fun. Sure, why not? And Peel's like, oh, are you sick? And the puppeteer says, no, I foresee my own death. So that's charming. There's a lot. That was a lot to unpack, Sam. Yeah. He's just, you know, oh, I see my death in this expedition. So. Is that why he's manic? Because that would make anybody a little bit manic. No, that's why he's depressive right now. Yeah. Eventually, Tila changes her mind and decides to go on the expedition. Yeah, of course. Of course. And she's like, because I love you, Lewis, I want to go with you. I want to be a hero. And basically, it's just sort of a whim for her. And Lewis is like... She's not taking this seriously. She's never had any hardship in her life. She was only 20. If she was any younger, I would, you know, tell her parents to keep her home, but not an option. Well, so, she'll never have hardship in her life, right? She has luck genes. <laughs> yeah. So apparently she loves him and they decide to go together. They also have beds that they like aren't beds. Like it's a floating field that you're suspended in between. So you just float. Sounds oddly uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah, it does. <laughs> The real question is, do they have relationships in the floating fields? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And that is actually gone into. And, uh, okay. So this is great. I forgot about this. This is crazy. So Tila Brown is apparently like the granddaughter of someone else that Lewis was in love with like a hundred years ago. No. What? Why? Yeah. So he was in love with like her great grandmother or grandmother or somebody like that, that he was super in love with her, but he got rejected. No. Oh, that's like weird. She turned it down. And she's like, you look just like her. That's so much like, weirder, Sam. Yeah, yeah. And so I'm like, why? Why is that detail here? That doesn't need to be in here. You don't need to... No. No, that's not right. <laughs> yeah. So I had to mention that because it's crazy. Why is that like a thing? <laughs> Can't believe you left that out originally. Hey, look, my notes are all over the place, Danielle. It's really hard to sift through them. <laughs> I'll give you a pass this time. No more weird buried leads, okay? This is like the second one. <laughs> <laughs> well, so they talk about like being on the spaceship and she's like, well, you want me to keep you company on the spaceship as she's trying to convince him to agree that she should go. And he's like, there's not much privacy on the spaceship. Are you sure you want to have sex in front of the alien? She's like, yeah, it wouldn't bother me. Would it bother you? He's like, yeah, kind of. <laughs> Aww. Does that make me, like, out Does of touch? Does it bother like, the yeah, alien? That's the real question. <laughs> she doesn't seem to think of the aliens as, like, people. It's weird. <laughs> That's concerning. And they, they're always saying tangible a lot, which is fun. <laughs> I want to make sure we brought that back. Thanks. I appreciate that. So 
they all get ready. The Nisus is very excited to learn that they're going to leave, and they leave from an Australian airport. In <laughs> Sydney port, with an eye. Whatever. I don't know where it is. It's just <laughs> someplace. So there are these other aliens called outsiders, which are like information brokers. They're kind of gaseous pods, and they live on a moon of Neptune, I think. They've released a moon of Neptune from humanity, and they pay in information. <laughs> and they love to buy information. They're, it's weird. I don't know what's going on. Least it. They're headed towards this moon of Neptune where the big ship is parked, because the big ship couldn't land on Earth. They had to take a smaller ship to get to Earth. Okay. They all board the small ship to get to the big ship on this Neptune moon, and the aliens run on thermoelectricity, the big outsider aliens, which, again, isn't relevant, but he loves to explain to you in great detail how all these alien cultures work, even though it has no bearing on the plot. It's just, I guess, to make the world feel like a Wikipedia of alien facts. Well, so far it does, so... Mission accomplished. So they all get into their pressure suits as they approach the planet. And you're going to like this. Speaker to Animals pressure suit is, quote, a multiple balloon transparent with a monstrously heavy backpack and a fishbowl helmet packed with esoteric looking tongue controls. What? What? (laughs) Yeah. So the cat monster, the giant cat monster is in a bubbly space suit with a fishbowl helmet that he controls with his tongue. No. What? No. Why? (laughs) I don't know. It just is. Does he not have hands he can use? He has hands. But, like, how are you going to manipulate the controls with the hands if they're in, like, gloves? Like, there are mouth controls for astronauts, I think, have mouth controls for some of their stuff. Sure. But tongue control sounds so much worse than mouth control. It it does. It sounds much grosser. Especially cat tongue. So I wanted to share that because it really delighted me, that image. (laughs) Okay. This is is a book. (laughs) It's a book. I told you. It's a weird book. So they approach the giant spaceship, which is like a giant sphere with two like little compartments hung underneath it, like a gondola for a uh, blimp. Uh And that's where they're going to live because the rest of the ship, the mile across ship is filled with, or mile around, I forget, one or the other. It's a big ship. It's filled with the hyperdrive. Impressive. So as we're about to land, speaker to animals pulls out a variable sword, which is a thin piece of wire that can be extended or retracted that has a slaver stasis field around it. Lots of words uh, that apparently can cut through anything. It's like a lightsaber. It's basically a lightsaber. But like a wire. Yeah, it's a wire that's held rigidly in place by a stasis field, which I'll get into what those are later, kind of. (laughs) Okay, sure. And he says, all right, I have this variable sword, and I want you all to just stay here. I'm going to steal the ship, and if you do anything, I'm going to cut you down. It's my ship. I'm going to take it back to my people, and forget the expedition. So it's not their ship to begin with? It's, well, he says he's going to steal it. He's going to steal the ship instead of going to the expedition. He's like, I'm going to take the ship. It's mine now, and I'm going to cut you down. It's, it's a It's a hijacking. Who was it again that just said that? Speaker to animals. The oh, warrior. yeah, speaker to animals. Sorry. <laughs> Your favorite thing. It's really hard to keep these people straight. I forgot speaker to animals was even there. <laughs> so while he's holding them at variable sword point, <laughs> Lewis says, tell us why. And he starts monologuing because, no, of course, he does. Why? <laughs> He's like, I can gain my name. I can gain prestige. I don't need to go on this expedition. You know, we're still warriors. I don't care about you guys. And then suddenly he is rendered immobile with his arms like spread out and he's making moaning noises of pleasure. What? For like 10 seconds. And while he's doing that, puppeteer's like, go disarm him. Apparently, somehow, 
The puppeteer has what's called a TASP, T-A-S-P, implanted surgically in his body. And what a TASP does is it stimulates the pleasure centers of the brain via, like, electromagnetic impulse. And apparently humans have these technologies. They, like, implant them in your skull, like, some wires, and you can get, like, a jolt of pleasure that lasts, like, a half a second or something. But the one that the puppeteer has is so sophisticated, it can do this from a distance and for up to 10 seconds at a time or so. Why? Why is that the solution to this problem? <laughs> so here's how this works. <laughs> Immediately, Spirit Animal was like, you know what? You got me. I'll be good. Because you will become addicted to the task, a slave to the task. Like you too many jolts of pleasure, you become servile to the controller of the task to the point where you do anything they say just to get that pleasure jolt. Sure. I feel like that's a thing that would happen for sure. Yeah. So that's how the puppeteer is controlling the kids and is saying, be good or I'm going to make you an addict to my pleasure button. <laughs> Wish he had actually said that. <laughs> it's so many words. <laughs> Well, that's such an odd solution to a hijacking. <laughs> it's crazy. But I guess the puppeteer, like, his backup plan is to cause pleasure, debilitating pleasure, to anyone <laughs> that drug gets in his way. <laughs> I mean, as far as, like, things go, that's not the worst, worst way to get somebody to do your bidding. Yeah. So that's how that went down. So there's that little, like, hijacking that went nowhere Plot so we could twist. learn about the pleasure button. <laughs> <laughs> Such a All weird right. solution. I did not see I'm that coming. skip ahead a bit because the rest of this is sort of, again, if you're very interested in all the ins and outs of Lewis flying the ship and the different kinds of engines on the planet, you can read the book. But I'm going <laughs> to skip that because I am not here to lecture you on science fiction stuff. And it's mostly just sort of like interesting, but not crazy. I appreciate that. So he spends about five days while his friends are in their suspended animation couches. This is where the slaver stasis fields come into place. You get put in a stasis field. It's like a um, suspended animation only time. Time doesn't pass within a stasis field, so anyone inside a stasis field or anything surrounded by a stasis field is 100% protected. Nothing can happen to it, because literally time doesn't move, so nothing can break it or harm it. So time happens outside of it, but not inside of it? Yes, exactly. So that's how they manage to like travel great distances over great periods of time without aging or you know, being in danger. Sure, but then all their friends and family and whatever outside of that have aged and died. Or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Oh, probably. That's fun. But they travel through hyperspace, so it doesn't matter anyway. So it's not like relativistic rules apply. <laughs> okay. Sure. Science. <laughs> so eventually, they come up to the destination, which is the puppeteer migration. The puppeteer migration is not just a bunch of ships, because <laughs> they would never take ships, right? Puppeteer migration. <laughs> yeah. I know. It's the words I have to say for this podcast, Danielle. <laughs> Sorry. It's funny that time. So... They are moving their entire star system, five planets, out of the galaxy. They're just, you know, blasting them off. It's just like the people on wait, the wait, gods themselves yeah, who like, want to drive <laughs> the moon away. These people are literally driving their planets through space. Again! How? How are they driving them through space? So this is this never case, answered for me. They have that answer here where they use what's called a, I think it's like, oh, I forget. It's like a, some kind of drive that uses momentum drive or, or, or whatever. There's some kind of space engine they use for no, it. No, no. <laughs> just no. Traveling at just below light speed are five planets in what's called a Kemplerer rosette, which is a gravitationally stable arrangement of bodies at the points of a regular polygon. I'm sorry, excuse me, a Kemplerer? Kemplerer. K-E-M-P-L-E-R-E-R. Kemplerer. Kemplerer. 
It sounds like you like don't know how to finish the word. It's like a yeah, a couple of rosette. You know that thing. So they're all awestruck by the technological prowess. We learn a little bit about the history of the puppeteers here. Apparently, their planet was becoming severely overpopulated because, again, they can't have sex without making babies. And so they first colonized other planets in their solar system to turn them into food-producing planets. But the biggest problem with their system was heat. Like, they're producing too much waste heat from energy production, from body heat, and they're worried about cooking their planet. Is the puppet the puppeteers or the katukis? The puppeteers. Okay, sorry. <laughs> the katukis don't have a, have a problem with overpopulation because they die too much in battle. I was just a little... I'm confused. It's okay. Continue. <laughs> it's confusing. So, their solution to the problem of overpopulation and excess heat generation was, let's move our planet a few you know million miles further away from our sun to cool it down. How does that affect the rest of the system surrounding it? Don't they live in some kind of like ecological stability or something? I'm sure they terraformed it. <laughs> okay, sure. They terraformed other planets. They terraformed this one. That's fine. I know, but you know how like if you took the moon out of our, as we discussed, if you took the moon out of Right, but if you could, solar, like, could like, throw literally a- build another moon... It wouldn't be, like, instantly. If you had the technological prowess to do that, it wouldn't be a problem. Sure. Okay. Let's go with it. They they figured it out, Danielle. They can move <laughs> planets through space. I think they have it covered. All right. I'm, I'm so eventually, there. they move their entire planet with its four accompanying agricultural support planets out to the edge of their solar system because their sun is transitioning to a red giant. And that's why no one could find their home planet because they couldn't find a star that was suitable because their star had been destroyed, essentially. Okay. It's like, oh, a big mystery of where were the puppeteer home planet? Well, it's flying through space. That's where it is. <laughs> That's all good planets are. So everyone is overawed by their technological prowess. And at this point, Tila and Lewis are speculating about why the puppeteers are so interested in this. Why did they hire them? And why are they going to investigate this ring around this mysterious sun when they're leaving the galaxy anyway to go to the clouds on Magellan to start a new life away from the supernova? Okay. And they speculate that, one, it's an experiment. The puppeteers want to see how the aliens interact because eventually everyone's going to have to leave the galaxy anyway and go to the clouds of Magellan to start over. And since the puppeteers are afraid of hyperspace travel, they're traveling very slowly, which is why they started their journey 20,000 years before they had to. Humanity, being humanity, is going to wait to the last minute and they're going to take the very fast ships they're getting from this expedition to make a sprint for it. And I'm probably going to get there before the puppeteers get there. So they're trying to like learn more about the people before they have to go and share a new living space with them. Oh, okay. So that's their big speculation for why the puppeteers want this expedition in the first place. Okay. So, yeah. <laughs> All right. Anyway. <laughs> I'm, sort of, I'm sort of following. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's, it's a lot, and I'm, I'm skipping a lot. Okay, so they land on the puppeteer planet. Nisus goes off to talk to the higher-ups, the hindmost, the hindiest, as they're called. <laughs> They're called the hindiest? They're called the leaders, or, or those who lead, or more accurately, those who lead from behind, or the hindmost. The hindmost? That's yeah. better than the hindiest. <laughs> <laughs> that was me. But it's not much different. <laughs> no, it's not. So, they go off, and while Aeneas is talking to the hindmosts, uh, they all go sit in a park and learn more about the planet, and so I'm going to get into some details about this ring. Okay. It's a giant disc around the sun, a diameter of like 90 million miles. 
So it's about one astronomical unit in diameter, and it's fairly narrow. So Discworld, that's a thing, right? Discworld that- is a is a comedy series <laughs> by Terry Pratchett. This Maybe is that's a ring what world. I'm confusing it with. <laughs> that's very possible. <laughs> Glad we got there. I feel better now. That's comedy fantasy. This is hard sci-fi. <laughs> No, but I, maybe it's what I'm confusing it with. I feel I feel better now. That Good. was bothering me. Sorry. So there's a disc, a ring, a ring, a ring, more than 90 million miles in radius, about 600 million miles long, and about less than a million miles across. So it's about 600 trillion square miles of surface area and three million times the surface area of Earth. So all these numbers are thrown at us. So I thought I'd share. <laughs> yeah. Thanks. I was like, okay. <laughs> Yeah, blah, blah, I know. Blah, I told you, this blah, book blah, gets blah, very luxury if I wanted it to. It can get to a very, like, uh, today we'll talk about the ring world, which is a uh, 90 million miles across, and uh, <laughs> you can see it has a centrifugal force roughly equivalent to 0.97 Gs and spins at 700 miles per second. You're like the teacher in Charlie Brown to me right now. Yeah, that's exactly what happens with this. <laughs> anyway... There's a lot of speculation about why this was built, who built it. They figured the race that built it must not have learned about interstellar travel and was overpopulation. That's a big theme in this book. Mm-hmm. And so they built this as sort of a last-ditch effort to create a massive area they could all live on. You know, they can't travel to space because they don't know hyperspace travel. So they had to settle on using a ring world. So they're talking about all going to this ring world to live at some point? No, they're talking about going to this ring world to find the people who built it and figure out what the heck it is. So that they can... What was the part, sir? I I think I, like, flatlined a bit while you are talking earlier. (laughs) No kidding. (laughs) They speculate the people who built it built it to solve overpopulation problems. Right, I got all that. But then what were they talking... What were you talking about earlier where you said that they had built some... They had... They were traveling ahead of time to go see... The puppeteers what? were traveling. You said the puppeteers were traveling ahead of time to go see. This, I can't wait for the summary next week. <laughs> I don't understand this part at all. You said the puppeteers were traveling ahead of time to go see something, no. and the humans were going to race ahead, and blah blah blah. No, they're all leaving the galaxy because our galaxy is exploding. Right, I got that. So the puppeteers are leaving now because they travel slow because they're cautious. Right, and they're are they going to the Ring World or somewhere else? And they're going to the clouds of Magellan. Okay. That's where my Which confusion lied. <laughs> Sorry. But they figured there might be more ring worlds or other species in the continent of Magellan that are equivalent in technological prowess. So they want to learn about it so they have a better idea of what they're in for when uh, they get there. Yeah, that makes more sense now. <laughs> okay, great. Okay, thanks. Sorry. You're welcome. I'm here. Okay, let's do this. Uh, I'm going to skip about the Kinzinti the, the Kins, first contact. That's a hard word to say. Kinzinti? Kentucky is much easier if you want to try It is. That. All right. I'm going to skip a lot of this. There's a lot of talking throughout this book. There's a lot of people sitting around and explaining things to each other. Like, here's how we met the, the Kizin. Here's how the wars went. Here's how, you know, which is, again, all well and good, but not much story, but a lot of exposition. Mises comes back and he's feeling a little depressed, but he apparently convinced the hindmost, <laughs> the council, whatever it's called, to grant him breeding rights and a pair of mates and... He insisted that they assign him a mate because no one will really mate with someone as crazy as he is. Who raises the children that they have? They do. I don't know. If one of them's not sentient. That's the kizen. <laughs> I'm so confused. <laughs> these, I'll get to this. These, this is another three gendered species. Okay. <laughs> You have to have two sentient puppeteers and a third non-sentient gender as part of their mating trio. <laughs> sure, why not? Yeah, okay. <laughs> it just is, Danielle. And so... Was this the puppeteer or the Kentucky? Yeah, puppeteer. The, okay. the Kizen has two genders, one non-sentient. Okay. The puppeteers have three genders, one non-sentient. <laughs> why 
alcohol and non-sentient thing involved in their sexual practices. Danielle, that is a question <laughs> I cannot answer. Oh, that's very concerning to me. <laughs> it is. But this is a sick burn. The uh, the puppeteer says, It was the hindmost who accepted me as his mate. He said that he would not ask another to sacrifice his self-respect. <laughs> Ouch. Yeah. Yeah. So, sick burn. Love it. That poor dude. Anyway, they all get back on the ship and they leave to go to the ring. This time, it's a smaller ship that isn't so fast, but has like a bunch of sensors hooked up to these big triangular delta wing on the outside of the ship. Mm -hmm. But the inside, the main hull is made of this indestructible special hull that is super safe (laughs) and has a stasis field built into it. Okay. This is all relevant. So super safe hull with a stasis field. Yeah. So if anything goes wrong, a stasis field activate preserving everyone inside of it until such time as it's safe to unpreserve them. Okay. So they fly after the ring world. It's a long journey. It's kind of boring. I won't get into it. They argue a bit. There's some cabin fever type things. They get to the ring world and nobody is answering any radio signals that they're sending or anything that's going on. And they're being very cautious. They fly around it looking for a way in. They find that it has like these giant walls a thousand feet high or something that keep in the atmosphere Mm -hmm. in case you cared. I totally do, obviously. (laughs) So they fly around it a bit. They also see that there are these square things, these rectangular giant things that are floating in closer to the sun that block – some of the sunlight that provide like a day-night cycle. So these shade that moves across the surface, uh, these alternating squares that are projecting a shadow onto the surface of the ring. How do the walls keep in atmosphere? Because it's like spinning. So you get this force, this centrifugal force. Oh, yeah. Right? That creates a false gravity and the walls keep it from just spilling off the side. I get it. Got it. I was just imagining like – I don't know, stone walls. <laughs> like, doesn't the atmosphere just go out of the wall? Here's a fact. <laughs> Apparently, and this is very impressive to them, the ring blocks 40% of neutrinos. Oh, so wow. That's... Take that fact to the bank. <laughs> Good to know. Put that in my pocket for later. There's a brief discussion of Dyson spheres here as well, as Lewis explains to Tila the difference between a Dyson sphere and the ring. I won't get into them, but they're basically like a sphere around a sun instead of a ring around a sun. Mm-hmm. Anywho, they fly around the ring. They can't find any way to, to, like, contact anyone on the surface. And they start trying to fly closer to the shadow disks to figure out if they can figure out what they are or can learn something about maybe their power generating for the ring. And they run into a wire that's, that is strung between the disks. <laughs> like a trip wire? <laughs> well, it's like a wire that, like, keeps them – like, so the, the, the disks are all connected to each other like a bracelet. Okay. And it keeps them in a stable orbit. And the wire's just sitting there. It doesn't have any, like, flag on it that's like, please don't hit our wire. Apparently not. <laughs> it's just there. <laughs> so as they're flying towards this thing, first what happens is they're flying towards the sun, and the Kizen is flying. He turns on the autopilot and leaves, and the autopilot's like, no, the sun must be an asteroid, and redirects them away from the sun. <laughs> that seems like a terrible autopilot. <laughs> it is. Seems bad. And apparently now their trajectory is like they're going to impact on the surface of the ring, And some automated defenses that think they're an asteroid that's going to destroy the ring fire up X-ray laser cannons that blast them. (laughs) And it destroys their wing system, which contains all of their engines and stuff. So basically, just the central hull of the spaceship is left with the most basic controls, which are hyperdrive and no real piloting skills. Why would the Kachiki, like, leave the air? Like, they're just, like, flying around doing discovery mission stuff. It takes, like, (laughs) it was a 14-hour flight. Like, he pointed it, it would take him 14 hours to get there. Like, this is not zip, zip, zip around. This is... (laughs) 
interminably long. <laughs> okay. They spent so much time flying around in space. It took them weeks to get to the ring when they left the planet. Got it. I'm skipping all of that. <laughs> right, 14 hours. Got it. Out of flight makes more sense now. So now they're sort of adrift. They're trying to angle their way out of the star system so they can get back into hyperspace when they hit the wire. And the wire damages the ship and sends them careening towards the surface of the ring. The wire that should have had a flag on it. It's why it should have had a flag on it. It's basic safety. <laughs> They're heading towards the ring, and the chapter ends with them crash landing on the ring. And that's where we're going to end today. Excellent. I skipped over a lot of character stuff. That's okay. Which is basically Tila alternating between excitement and boredom. She apparently has no fear of this, because again, her life is charmed. And Lewis being frustrated by her, <laughs> and also playing diplomat between the Kizen and the puppeteer, who are constantly sort of arguing, because the Kizen like, is brave and warrior-like and wants to get down there. And the puppet's like, no, I'm scared. Let's not land. It's too risky. Maybe he and Tila shouldn't have moved in together, you know, moments after meeting each other. <laughs> two weeks. Yeah, they're together two weeks, literally. Yep, there you go. That was their own bad decision. It's their fault. Hopefully... Next time, we can learn a little bit more about what this ring is and if there's anybody living on it or what it's like. Because it has like a whole topography. There are mountains, there are oceans, like the earth. You rolled flat and then stuck end to end a million times or whatever. I'm still really confused why that wire didn't have anything on it. Like think about when you go around a hospital and you have all the <laughs> power lines and they have the big orange balls on them. So you don't hit them when the helicopters come to the, the pads. the people who built the ring didn't anticipate people coming afterward who they wouldn't communicate with. Like there is some speculation so far in the book that – Maybe they have reverted to savagery. That's why they can't communicate with anybody. And these are just automated systems that are left. Have they reverted to savagery because they moved to a ring world? <laughs> I don't know, Danielle. I don't know as much as you do at this point. Well, no, that's true. I don't know more than you, like but you I don't really know more than you. I know you don't remember it, but you know more than I do. I know there's more to the book. I don't remember what that more is. <laughs> So stranded on the ring world. They're now stranded on the ring world. I'm glad we finally got to the actual name of the book. Yeah, yeah no, this book has a tremendous amount. It feels very Lords of the Sky, where it has a tremendous amount of setup and world building and all these details that make it clear that he really thought deeply about the physics and mechanics and the sexual practices of all the things in this universe and the trading and the and the diplomacy, but none of that's really relevant because we're only going to follow four of them as they're stranded on an alien planet. So we're not like actually going to have like interstellar diplomacy be part of this book. I'm curious what's going to happen. That's good. I know. That's you, a good start. It is. <laughs> I'll be honest. I am too because I remember literally almost nothing about this book except that the ending – well, I won't, I won't say anything about it. But let's just say <laughs> that it was – It was weird. Yeah. We'll have to see what happens on our next episode. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, Danielle. Do you think you can handle another episode of Ringworld? Yeah. Maybe. Yeah, probably. I don't know. Do we get into like the non-sentient sex practices? Because I'm not sure I'm down for that. I don't think so. Again, I think they're just mentioned and like the fertility board and all this other stuff is sort of just mentioned. It's just a choice the author made to make that a detail to include to flesh out his universe, I guess. Is this like the beginning of, um, what is that movie called? Of Pitch Black, where they land on the planet and they think there should be a, a group of people living there. And it turns out that they're all eaten by creatures that come out of the weird... Honestly, Danielle, I do not remember. Because <laughs> I feel like that would be a really good story. I should also mention that in his foreword to the book, Larry Niven says he never intended to write sequels, but then he did. <laughs> So this book should stand on its own. Oh, that's good. And I'm not sure about that. <laughs> It'd be funny. I like it. It'd be funny if it ended on a cliffhanger. <laughs> like, and we're not doing the other one. So too bad for you all. <laughs> 
<laughs> that would be funny. <laughs> I think we've gotten most of the world building out of the way. We've established the alien cultures and races. We've established the people and we've got them to the main destination, the point of the book. But man, there was a lot of encyclopedia-like entries about the history of this universe to get through to get there. Yeah, but now you're on a new world, so he can world build for this world. <laughs> <laughs> oh, world no. building part two. <laughs> it's world building inception. <laughs> Who knows if it's real or not? <laughs> oh, no. I, I also be clear again, I'm not saying it's bad. Like, it's all very interesting sci-fi concepts. It is super famous. I just... Don't know much about it. Yeah, I, I'm having fun reading it, so I, I got no complaints there. Well, good. But yeah, so if any of our listens out there, yeah, like what what did we talk about earlier? <laughs> you told everybody to send to me. Oh right, right, right. <laughs> Whatever uh, that don't was, don't send that to me. <laughs> if I said anything wrong about the mechanics of this world, that they should correct all my misstatements and my summaries to you. Oh yeah, actually, if Sam did anything wrong, you should definitely send me an email, or you can yeah. find us on Look. Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. <laughs> at Booker Dorts. I'll be honest, I'm definitely going to be glossing over the concepts and probably <laughs> summarizing them in, in incorrect ways. So definitely, if you want to share your treatise on the mechanics <laughs> of the Ringworld universe, definitely send it to our Twitter or our, uh, BookerTorts.com, <laughs> our, our website. Send it on our Twitter with your whatever, what is it, 240 <laughs> characters that you can write your treatise with. They can link to it, Danielle. <laughs> That's true. They can embed things or they can put a video. Maybe they want to do a YouTube explainer. I don't know. Whatever it is, we'll probably look at it. <laughs> we will. We would definitely look at it. <laughs> oh, man. I'm excited for for next time, mostly just to hear you summarize what I just told you. <laughs> you don't even know. It's going to be it's going to be terrible. <laughs> no, you're going to be great. You're going to be amazing. It's going to be completely incomprehensible. Not to say that I was much better. So yeah. I, I don't know the plot. I don't know the plot right now. And it only happened like an hour ago. <laughs> So if you're as excited as I am, definitely join us next week for Book Retorts. Until then, bye! Take care, everybody. Oh, I gotta take this call. Hold on a second. Mm-hmm. Sun is a mass of incandescent gas. That was a good song. <laughs> Thanks.